everyone, I'm Yumi Kendall. And I'm Joseph Conyers. And welcome to Tacit No More, a podcast where we are no longer silent. Asking the questions that need to be asked and saying the things that need to be said about classical music. Tacit No More is an optimist's playground and landing pad for positive discussions about our belief in the power of music to better humanity. And we will invite voices from all sectors to inspire us in the work we do on and off the stage. Joe and I have been friends for nearly 25 years and have over 40 years between us as professional musicians. We've had the best of conversations. Would you join us? We're back. Hi. Oh. Hey, Yumi Kendall. <laughs> Hi, Joseph Conyers. We're still doing this. Now, whether people are actually listening to us is another question altogether, but we're still doing it. We've got this. That's right. That's right. Um, and how are things going for you today? Um, I'm I'm doing well. I think it's been another beautiful day. Yes, absolutely. Right? Yes, absolutely. Weather class. <laughs> that's right. Well, that, actually, that's a great. I so let me explain this. Many folks always wonder why my handle on Instagram is weather class, and I'm going to uh, clear this up for everyone right now. In now case anybody has been losing sleep over this. <laughs> That's right. Now that I have your rest rapt, assured. <laughs> your rapt attention. Uh, so when I was a wee lad uh, growing up in Savannah, Georgia. We need to say that with an accent. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. A wee lad. Um, I had multiple loves. And while I always loved and enjoyed music, I also really loved and enjoyed weather. I was a total weather Geek. Because like, as if being a classical musician <laughs> wasn't nerdy enough. <laughs> there may have, in my past, been some Steve Urkel references to Joe Conyers <laughs> growing up as a child. That is very, very possible. You just dated us. That's <laughs> right, just a little bit. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, so I really love the weather. I love the weather so much, and I have to do the shout-outs because I have to do the shout-outs. Pat Prokop was literally, like, my hero. He was the meteorologist for WTOC Channel 11, and I watched Pat Prokop religiously. Every every newscast, I mean, they ran from, like, 4.30 or 4 in the, until, like, 6.30. When did you practice? Uh, probably in between. Really? <laughs> when they were talking about the news. Uh, I was a, an official storm tracker. For the National Weather Service. Get out. Absolutely. What, what, what does that entail? Tell so me. I had to attend a few seminars that were given by the National Weather Service so I could get my certification, so I could learn how to actually accurately read a rain gauge and make different um, uh, observations and be able to report them to the National Weather Service. So one of the coolest things... And this is really cool to me. Don't laugh at me, because okay, this is cool. Okay, sorry. This is cool. I would do the rain report for Savannah State University, because that's where we lived, very close to. And Pat Prokop would say my name on the news. Oh, my God. So Joseph Conyers out at Savannah State picked up such and such amount of rain. Um, and it was awesome. I loved it. He, so thank you, Pat Prokop, for making me feel very special during my Steve Urkel days. <laughs> um, uh, and the practicing, you, you, you got me through a lot. So that's great. So anyway, so weather class, that's right. So now you have it. Meteorology and music. So weather clap. And that is that thus is my handle on Instagram for all those who were wondering why it was called weather clap. We can all breathe out now we with can a all sigh breathe. of understanding really <laughs> for right. the completeness of weather clap. That's right. Well you know who else has to breathe? 
oboe players. Oh, yes. <laughs> How's that for a segue? That was brilliant. Super smooth. In fact, actually, I want to I ask her about circular breathing. Too, oh, yes. Because that is a whole other... And then double tuck, triple tuck, like all of the tuck, 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 like all, all of it. But anyway, there are many things <laughs> I, wonder, right. I can't wait to ask Catherine about. Someone taught me circular breathing. I could actually sort of do it. It's pretty, pretty cool. Cause now, would you, if you did it on air, would we be able to tell? <laughs> that's that right. Well, that's the point. If a tree <laughs> falls in the forest, it'll be No, Catherine is amazing. Uh, so I, my earliest Catherine Needleman memory is when we were in school, she had just graduated. And she was kind of like a legend yes. at the school. Catherine yes. Needleman, the, the oboist. So I was so excited to be able to play with her. I think the very first time we collaborated was around one of my later years in school, my fourth or fifth year of, um, uh, of, of Curtis. I did a gig where she was playing Bach, the uh, double concerto oh. uh, for oboe and violin. Oh. Um, and it was at Trinity. I don't know if you remember that. Did, you, did you play that? I don't think okay, so. Okay, all right. Anyway, it was a fantastic gig. It was beautiful to hear her play. And um, it's been fantastic to watch her career. It's been amazing, and she's so she's now the principal oboe of the Baltimore Symphony. Is recently appointed to Curtis um, faculty. Yes, and she's also been very, very um, doing some very courageous work in the industry, shining, uh, showing a mirror basically. And I'll want to hear how she frames it. Yes. but basically holding up a mirror to institutions and organizations, and with numbers. Showing what their DEI stats mm -hmm. are. The information that Catherine has provided on Facebook has been eye-opening. Uh, I found it to be incredibly inspirational work, uh, also courageous work, because it's not it's the 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 uh, institutions and the observations that she makes are not even just limited to the United States, but uh, on a global level. And for to watch and see her passion for bringing and shining a light to this really important issue, uh, I just find incredibly inspirational. And I know she's completely paving the way for so many um, in the future. So I'm just excited to talk to her about her career, uh, this subject, and, um, and the industry as a whole. Let's welcome Catherine Needleman. Oh my gosh, hi. Hi. <laughs> How are you? You both. You're all together. We are. We are. Oh, this is so good to see you and reconnect. We were pre-savoring our conversation. Yes. The other I, I, I hope I don't disappoint you. <laughs> Actually, one thing we did want to ask you about was circular breathing. Can you just uh -huh. give us like a rundown on circular breathing? I can definitely talk about circular breathing. That, that's something I'm pretty comfortable talking about. So do you know what it is? Maybe explain it for the folks who might be listening. Okay. So circular breathing is where um, typically when we play the oboe we, or any wind instrument, we're blowing out. Um, and sometimes you need to breathe in. Well, you always need to breathe in, right? <laughs> Normally we stop the music and, you know, artfully breathe and then continue the music. Um, did you ever hear um, Jack Black had this group, Tenacious D? And he did the thing with inward singing. And so he would like sing, sing, sing. And then he would sing while he was breathing in. But, but it's a little easier because uh, for the oboe, it's pretty easy. You just, um, you kind of force the air out with the muscles of your face and your neck um, while you breathe in through your nose. 
Yes. So it's not, you're not actually breathing in and breathing out at the same time. It's just sort of, we're mocking that we're breathing out by squeezing air with our muscles. And the effect is that you can continue the sound. Um, and if you do it well and artfully, it's hidden. Is that something you use in your play? I do a fair bit, actually, which okay. is maybe um, not super kosher. Um, okay. if, if, you know, you had a discussion of a bunch of pedagogues, they would say, oh, it's not, uh, you know, appropriate technique. Um, but uh, this actually maybe comes to a little bit of our topic. Um, you know, my lungs are very small because I am a five foot two woman. And, you know, I think even if I were a man, my lungs would be significantly bigger. That's just physiology, mm -hmm. right? Um, women have smaller lungs than men and shorter people have smaller lungs than taller people. So I'm, I'm screwed. And so I spent like all this time trying to figure out how to get enough air in my body. And then I just like measured my lungs and it's very easy to do. And I wow. have like a really small lung capacity. I mean, it's wow. a fine lung capacity. I have no trouble living, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like probably half of what, you know, like a six foot tall guys, um, lung capacity is. So they have a lot of technical problems with excess air and I have a lot of technical problems with not enough air. So just, you know, every, it's like playing any instrument. You come at it from yeah, different I, angles. With technique, rules are meant to be broken. Yes. One of the first things I tell all my students is do not look at my, my bow grip. Just don't look at my right <laughs> hand. Just don't. <laughs> but it, somehow it's worked. Yeah, somehow yeah you have worked. to do what you have to do. Yeah. Like I spent so long trying to get more air in and be able to sustain longer. And you know, I can only sustain a note for 30 seconds, which for an oboe player is really short. It's mm. super short. So yeah, so you, okay. you made it work. Yeah. I've gotten that comment. I didn't realize it was a thing until I would get a comment that I was this petite cellist when I reached the professional stage. And it, I wasn't ever self-conscious about anything until I got to the point where someone else would tell me, oh gosh, you have such a big sound for such a, you know, petite person but i does that I, matter how is it how that matter i i i apparently it doesn't matter because i'm managing just fine yeah. thank you very much but, right. but there were these perceptions apparently and i'm stopping those so here we are yeah isn't it amazing perceptions i mean certainly i've played so many times in the orchestra like for some conductor i've never played before and there's an oboe solo coming up and before i've even made a note that he's heard you know i get like the hand like play louder, no you know, way. before I've made a uh, note, you know, so I think, and you know, now I'm older, I probably look older too, uh, which of course no one wants to admit, but I'm sure <laughs> I do. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, so I think that I get a little bit less of that now, but for a while I sort of played defensively that way. Like I just mm. made way more than I probably should have, you know, just because they're doing this ahead of time. And it's like, come on, well, how are we starting like this? You haven't heard anything that I've right. made, right. you know? Right. Yep. Uh, why these perceptions uh, exist, I'm not quite sure. For us to break them. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, Absolutely. before we continue, um, one thing that we wanted to, to do is this exercise that we've been calling this one good thing activity. It's an activity to bring connection and openness and um, orients us to the positive, which are all values that are important to us. It's like shining a flashlight in a, in a dark room and what we experience is what we pay attention to, whatever the flashlight is shining on. Um, so we want to ask ourselves and then also invite our listeners to think about their one good thing, our one good thing. What's one thing that I'm grateful for recently. What's something that's meaningful? Um, 
And so if you're willing, I'll go ahead and start and share my one good thing. And then maybe Joe, you can offer yours and Catherine, if you're willing, that would be great. Sure. Um, thank you. I slept really, really well last night. <laughs> and it just made me so grateful to have a restorative, long, full sleep. And it just, I, it's like the triumvirate of those physiology, the self-care of, you know, move, eat, move, and sleep, eat, move, and rest. And uh, for me, that rest is so important, and I'm just so grateful I, I feel restored and with good energy for our conversation now. So wow. that's, that's, that's my awesome. one good thing. That's great. <clears throat> I have a cheat sheet for my one good thing today because this was a little unexpected, but it was a very pleasant surprise. So I received an award today. That is not the good thing. <laughs> we can still interject with applause. <laughs> I received a Torchbear Award. It is Saturday, so it's probably time for you to get an award. <laughs> <laughs> From Delta Sigma Theta, um, uh, Sorority, and um, it's their Torchbearer Award. They they honor a few folks in the community, but it's done all under the auspices of honoring a woman named Sadie Tanner Moselle Alexander, who I never heard of. But there's a school in West Philadelphia named after her, Penn Alexander, a middle school, and she was born in 1898. Just to give you a sense of of, of of her, her time. She was the first African-American to receive a PhD in economics in the United States. Wow. She was the first woman to receive a law degree from UPenn Law School wow. uh, and went on to become the first black woman to, pr to practice law in the state. She was also the first national president of Delta Sigma Theta sorority, serving from 1919 to 1923. So that was my one good thing because Yes, I received this Torchbearer Award, but I'm, I always talk about the fact that anything that I've done was not done by me, but was done by many folks before me. And I'm glad to be able to name Dr. Sadie Alexander as one of those people. Wow. So, yeah. Profound. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Profound. Yeah, I loved reading that when I read one of the articles about your appointment. Um, you had a beautiful quote in there along the same lines of what you just said that you, know, <laughs> you felt like you were the accumulation of so many people. Absolutely. Thanks. Yeah. I guess I have to go now. <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, I'm still kind of riding high. Um, from a success related to a student of mine. Mm. Um, I opened a, like a scholarship for um, underrepresented genders and oboe, um, sort of as a result of the things I'd been hearing and sort of the excuses I'd been getting, you know, like it's a pipeline issue, right? The reason we don't have women here and there and in all of these positions of leadership and oboe and every other instrument is because of the pipeline. You know, the pipeline is deficient and all of this. And I said, okay, well, um, let me just, I'm, I had learned how to use Zoom, you know, as a teaching tool um, in the pandemic. And I think there's a lot of great stuff that can happen there. Certainly there's some things that, you know, are, you can't really cover super well on Zoom, but I felt like, you know, I had, figured it out pretty well. And so I'm going to just open it up to anybody anywhere in the world. And I got, um, I said one or two, and it was really, really easy for me to find two students who I really love teaching. I mean, it's, um, it was super easy. And I realized listening to these um, tapes that people had 
at me that there's actually not a pipeline issue that I can tell whatsoever because there are a lot of really good gender marginalized players out there, um, at least in Oboe. So anyway, um, I have this one student from Mexico and the composer Valerie Coleman, I know you're both familiar with her because mm -hmm. she does so much stuff with Philly Orchestra. And she was able to help me get this student a really big scholarship. And so she got a full ride and room and board and I'm super excited, but the girl can't get to the United States, right? Because uh. she's from a small town in Mexico and you know the money there does not translate into international flights and visas and spending six weeks in the news and all that. So I'm thinking, oh, how am I going to get her here? You know, maybe I'll make a benefit concert. Maybe I'll sell some reeds. I don't know. And I thought, well, I'll try GoFundMe. I've seen GoFundMes. I've never done that. But I put together a GoFundMe. And within like five hours, I had exceeded the oh. goal that oh, I set up. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so she, not only is she going to like fly not on the super crappiest flights that we could find, you know, <laughs> decent flights at, you know, decent hours and times, but we had some money to get her some good equipment because she's managed to make reeds, which is really hard, on like really super junky equipment. And so it's like all of this stuff is going to be waiting for her when she arrives. And it made me feel fantastic because there's 47 people that donated to it. You know, 47 people who don't know this young Mexican girl who plays the oboe. And most of them don't even know me. And, you know, some of them gave $10 and some of them gave $500. And, you know, now she's coming for, I think, what's going to be a pretty life-changing um, trip to Tanglewood for the summer. And she's going to come, like, work with me hands-on for a week in advance. So I'm excited about that, too, because you see somebody for a year online and it's like you really just want to hold their oboe for a second and, you know, yes, yeah. try try like this. You know, being in a room is actually helpful. So. Yeah. Uh, what a heartwarming story of success and opportunity that you've provided for her. I mean, I'm so excited for her. And, and I don't know about that, but I mean, it's there's so many people, right? It's mm -hmm. like there are 47 people who want good for this yes. child. Really. Yes. And so that was really exciting to me. Incredible. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, well, I think one thing that would be really helpful is, um, would you share with us um, your musical journey where you are now and kind of a little bit about your performance self. Oh, um, well, I started very much like you both, right, at the Curtis Institute. Um, well, I guess nobody starts at the Curtis Institute, but that's kind of where we like, where we get into the profession a little bit. Um, and then I was a freelancer for three or four years um, before I got the principal oboe job in Baltimore. And I've been there ever since. Um, so pretty straightforward. I'm uh, from Baltimore, so it's very nice for me in many ways to be in Baltimore. I didn't know that. That's wow. very cool. Coming home. Yeah, I'm from Baltimore. <laughs> That's neat. <laughs> yeah, we, we were talking also about the the early memories of Curtis when we got in in the the legendary Catherine Needleman. Absolutely. God, that makes me feel old. Um, <laughs> no, no, we overlapped. <laughs> Did we overlap at all or did I leave before you came? Because I was around home because I was freelancing. I think you left and then we came in. You're I left in 99. Yeah, yeah. We, started we started in 99. 99. Last century, folks. I graduated <laughs> last century. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, something that we've talked about and what we want to dive even deeper into is um, the work that you've been doing in DEI and 
pointing out the admirable work and the courageous work you're doing, pointing out the successes and failures of organizations and institutions around the world. And I'm kind of curious, what was there a defining moment or was there more of a process of some kind that before you decided to embark on this kind of brave advocacy work, what was the process that led you to this or moment in time? Well, I mean, I think it was a, a realization that women are missing and that came to me very slowly and in, in a number of ways. Um, and I guess as I became aware of that, um, sort of consciously aware of it, I also became very acutely aware that the silence of marginalized people that allows their marginalization to continue. So that mm -hmm. is something that I sort of actively decided, well, I'm just, you know, not going to shut up anymore. Um, and certainly we're taught to shut up, I think, um, sort of implicitly and, and explicitly. Um, I, certainly I was since I was a student and, you know, I love Curtis, of course, but, um, you know, I, I learned a lot of things there, both good and bad. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I was there, I went there without finishing high school against the wishes of my parents. And, you know, most of the time I just felt really lucky to be in the room, right? I was there with like all of these gods and you know, teaching me and all of these um, fantastic colleagues. Um, but, you know, I learned some things maybe by example that weren't so wonderful, like, um, you know, I learned as a student that we don't play music by women composers because it's just not as good as music by men composers. Um, I learned that principal woodwind players did not look like me because I didn't see any of them. You know, I went to the beloved Philadelphia Orchestra and mm -hmm. I watched those guys and I loved those guys and I wanted to be just like those guys. But, you know, I wasn't like those guys. Um, and, um, you know, I learned that, uh, you know, I sort of had maybe small ambitions to be a composer then, but mm. um, I learned that the stuff that I wrote, you know, wasn't very good. And, um, and so I also learned that I had to go to great lengths to keep people comfortable and happy in order to be employed, right? We, we all know this, that you have to have people like you and um, in order for them to advocate for you, in order for them to hire you, in order to be a freelancer. Um, and so it took me really a long time um, decades really and some public embarrassment uh and a fair bit of job security to unlearn those things unlearn those behaviors or that mm -hmm. that's how things had to be um in 2018 so a long time later um i made the super super uncomfortable choice to go public about um a charge against my employer with the equal employment opportunity commission um and that just, it makes my heart race to just even talk about it, but um, it's now available to the public in large part through the Freedom of Information Act. Um, and that was sort of a culmination of sorts of, you know, feeling pushed up against the wall, which I described in great detail mm -hmm. in that charge. Um, my employer did not have a sexual harassment policy. They were okay with a man threatening me, demeaning me, and lying during internal investigations about asking for sex um, because they didn't have a sexual harassment policy. Um, and so as I described in the charge, um, if you don't have a sexual harassment policy, the only standard is basically what's criminal. And that's, uh, for me, not how workplaces should be. You know, what, what is criminal? No, I wasn't raped. 
no, I wasn't assaulted, but there should be a higher standard, I think, for women existing in orchestras. Um, And, uh, you know, I, as I described on the charge, I had been disbelieved when I reported this. I had been told not to talk about it with my colleagues by HR. I was denied union representation. Mm. And while I was denied union representation, I was asked to sign an NDA. Um, in order to continue the investigation. Um, and then I was told after they had commissioned an outside HR investigation, an outside person, that the issue was closed and they wouldn't even mention anyone's name. Um, but what I did know was that this outside commissioned HR person um, interviewed a colleague of mine and basically tried to get him to say that I was difficult, I was hard to work with, and she only focused on potential issues with me and didn't even ask about this man, right? There, they, she didn't even bring him up at all, didn't bring up, you know, the request for sex, didn't bring up the threats, the lies, none of that came up, it was all on me, right? So it was sort of very classic gaslighting that I described. And, um, you know, I wanted my employer to get a sexual harassment policy. Um, I wanted them to institute anonymous reporting because as I described in the charge, I believed there were at least seven other women with issues. And I wanted them to institute consequences for lying in investigations. Um, and um, they didn't want to engage. Of course they didn't want to engage, right? Mm. I'm supposed to be quiet. That's that's the given. Right. And you know, that I they just pushed me into that corner and I really seriously considered just shutting up and going about my business and playing the oboe. Um, and then I guess I decided, um, you know, I had grown up with a mother who was a doctor. She went to University of Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. like doc- Dr. Alexander. Right? Yes, that's yeah, yeah. correct. So, yeah, so I, I don't, when were Dr. Alexander's dates? I don't remember. My mother's after, I'm sure. Yes, yes. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but she graduated in 1975, mm-hmm. and she's very clear that when she was a medical student there, she was there because of a quota. Mm. She was there because they required 10% women in the, in the student body there. Yeah. She said they required 5% black people and 10% women. And they adhered exactly to that. No more, no less, right? Exactly. And that's how um, she got into Penn. That's how she became a doctor. She was very successful as far as you know I can understand from other people. Um, but she faced really absolutely disgusting sexual harassment from, you know, assault and discrimination um, and unfair treatment um, throughout her career. And, you know, my grandmothers had done the same. And I was sitting at home with two little girls and I'm like, I, um, I'm not going to shut up about this shit anymore. You know, can I say that? I'm sorry. Am I allowed to? <laughs> Keep going. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. So, um, and I was like, I, I'm not going to shut up. I was pushed into a corner and I went public. And um, that I, I think anyone who goes public about any element of this stuff will tell you that it is absolutely horrible. And and it was absolutely horrible. Um, and it, it, it was um, at least a very bad couple of years. And then we had a pandemic. We had a lockout. Uh, the orchestra was locked out. Um, which was actually very good for me. I mean, not, no, not, not <laughs> glad that we were locked out. It was terrible. But the time away and the, the perspective that I gained from the time away, I did a lot of work outside then, um, was very good for me. I did a lot of solo work. And, um, so, so that was very helpful to me. Um, and then we had a pandemic and I mean, the world was turned upside down. And so I think it was about July, 2020, 
um, that I very casually posted. And at this point, I had just been doing oboe nerd stuff, right? I made a bunch of concerts for the pandemic and I would, my advocacy was all about, oh, here are some women composers. Here are some, uh, you know, racially underrepresented composers. I'm going to play their music. Look how good it is. You know, if you, my hope was to present it well and that people would care uh, about it because there's so much bad oboe music that we play. And it's like, look at all these other things we could be playing instead. Right. And so my advocacy was really focused in that direction, just shutting up and playing, right? And so in about July 2020, I'm sitting on the couch in the pandemic and I very casually posted a screenshot of all of the faculty of the Pacific Music Festival, mm -hmm. where I had been a student in 1996 and 1997. And of course, it was all men, right? They have PMF America, it was like all men, and PMF Europe, uh, which is like Berlin and Vienna, and it was all men. And I just put it there, no words, nothing. And I really had this huge response and people were outraged. And I was I was sort of shocked. I was like, well, of course, of course, that's how I feel too. Yeah. But I didn't say anything. And I was very active about not saying anything. I used no words for a really long time. Um, and I started making collages after that, you know, of, and I would just make a title very objective title like you know the faculty here or the principal players here or the jury here or the composers here and people could draw what they wanted from it right they saw it with their own perspective um you know they might see women missing they might see black people missing they might see latinx people missing they could they might see disabled people missing um and so everyone could come at it with their own perspective and um in this way i was maybe a little less offensive um, but I think people really started to follow me then. And I got, I started getting all kinds of messages, you know, like <laughs> private messages. And so then I would make a collage of this or that based upon what I would hear from people. And it only, it took me quite a while to start using my own words, mm -hmm. like actually writing words, which are far more offensive to people. Mm -hmm. And I'm still a little bit surprised that some of the things I say are as offensive as they are. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's, that's how I got into it. You know those that conglomeration of things and sure. realizing that silence was the the catalyst for all of this to continue wow thank you so much for sharing all of that um and your your courage is beyond admirable and um i imagine that you also you're not only receiving all of this pushback which we see publicly online um but we also as you pointed out i think you must also be um a recipient, a kind of, you must become a confidant for many folks in a way, because um, like a kindred spirit. Like I know I've messaged you and about uh, circumstances or things that I've observed in other institutions. Um, and so you've kind of become a, a very helpful resource. And like, I feel like, oh, what would Catherine do <laughs> in many ways? I start asking like, what would, what would Catherine say about this circumstance? And, um, it actually makes me wonder, is there going to be a time when you feel like your work is done? Like oh, like RBG, you know, on the <laughs> Supreme Court, like what is the stat? Like, oh, it'll be nine, nine, nine women, women, you know, then it, that'll be fine. What, is there, a, is there an end vision to any of this? It's more, I mean, definitely right now we're in a process. Um, yeah, wow, I hadn't thought about that. Um, you know, I think at some point, I mean, it is it is sort of fatiguing in a way. I mean, I don't want to say I'm I'm tired. I, I don't like that. But um, 
No, it, it is a lot. And I try, I really try to respond to people that write me. I mean, there are a lot of people that I don't respond to very, like I very actively don't want to respond to that. But, you know, certainly the people that write with a legitimate issue, I really try to respond. Um, and I try to help them in some way if I can, or I try, if there's something that I can expose for them, because so many people are not able, I've, I've heard from so many people, oh, I really would like to talk about this. Um, you know, my teacher tells me not to talk about it. Uh, you know, I need to get freelance work and I know what it's like to be a freelancer. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm happy to take that burden a little bit because I'm at the point where I just, I just don't care, you know, <laughs> I don't care what people think about me sharing this. Uh, and in fact, I've, I've really learned that the people who have a problem with me because of what I do, they're actually people that I don't, want to be in touch with anyway you know and yes may, many of them are fancy and and important people but it's like if they have a problem with me saying wow there are no women here or wow this is all white people is that cool um then that's actually not really a group of people i need to associate with or i desire to associate with um but i hadn't thought of well when is this done um in terms of the rbg thing um you know, when, whenever we see women now, like an all woman event, that's because that's what it is, right? It's like, oh, we're having a festival of women's music. We don't, we don't see it otherwise yet. So maybe if we see that and it's not advertised as that, maybe, maybe that. I feel like there, there are layers to that too, because it's not just when we will see a, a the population that needs to be there, but it will also be the reactions will be like, oh yeah, great. Like, it's not a big deal when right. we're not getting pushback or when it's not being kind of like you're saying, it's not being advertised as such. But um, I mean, and um, I also think about Sphinx. And I remember asking Aaron Dworkin early on when he came to a Project 440 event and asking, you know, this is like a form of planned obsolescence. Like, you would love to be obsolete. Like, we would right. love for this work. <laughs> to be obsolete, to not be needed. And that's just kind of what I I think of with, um, I was just reading this article in the, a recent Atlantic about, um, it's actually about eureka moments, but in the point of the article is demystifying that quote unquote myth. But it gave two examples, one about the centuries it took for the smallpox vaccine to be created and then distributed and how long it took for that process. And then fast forward to 2020 and COVID-19, and within a matter of months, we had right. been able to disseminate the first mRNA vaccines. And that was with systems, contribution, help, operation, um, you know, all, all, these, all these organizations working together, governmental, federal agencies, globally. And I was thinking about, gosh, what about this work this courageous work that Catherine is doing, if we, if it's like a healthcare sort of element, there was a long time for the smallpox vaccine, but now it feels like we're in an accelerated time. Like ever since George Floyd, there's been a social, appropriate social justice movements also in the previously glacial classical industry, of kind of like the smallpox vaccine. And it made me think about your work I'm saying your work because that's the topic of this podcast, but I consider it our collective work. That resonated with me because of the urgency with which I feel 
we're doing this work. That's, that's sort of the urgency that I felt. Yeah, I mean, I sure feel urgent. I mean, I know you <laughs> both feel urgent, right? I think a lot of other people don't feel so urgent. Right. <laughs> right. No, I, I, the only thing I was going to add to that is what I was thinking this whole time is, um, and I said this in a speech once, but you, 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 you touched on it um, when you were talking about your time at Curtis. We don't know what we don't know. We don't. And so I, I mean, I'm saying this as a black man from Savannah, Georgia, who went to Curtis and didn't play any music by a black composer. Not that I remember. <laughs> I didn't either play. I played no music by black composers at Curtis. Right. But I never thought about it because the spot, the space I was in, it wasn't even connected. That conversation, they were so far apart. They weren't connected. And we were part of the system. I mean, right. I mean kind of involuntarily, but voluntarily, but involuntarily as far as what we, we knew, but we're part of the system that said, you must do this, you must do this, you must do this, and this is the only way. And whenever those systems are challenged, there, there's always pushback. I mean, I mean, we're, I mean, we're talking about like, not even the composers, but like, if you, I mean, just think, I, I think even about the, the, the French and they started using parallel fifths and like, <laughs> and it, I mean, the people are, are starting riots over music, like, yeah. because it's not what they were used to. Beethoven's first symphony, the, the, the first chord, it's like, oh my goodness. It, it's, so <laughs> that's the world we're living in. And it takes folks like yourself and other, other pioneers to actually break the mold and shine a light on these issues and say, no, this is not normal. This is not okay. Um, uh, well, I hope that some people see it, you know, like I, I, I think that's part of the collages that I start started with because yeah. I think a lot of times we, like you said, we don't know what we don't know, right? And people just weren't thinking, Correct. thinking about it. Um, and you said, when does it, when does it end for me? And this is a really stupid answer. It's not the answer. Um, I'm just an oboe player, right? Like, and so I'm, I, my world started there in this very small, small, tiny, tiny, crazy world of neurotic people making small reads, you know? Uh, but, you know, we've never seen a woman play, have a tenured chair playing principal oboe in one of the lead American orchestras or one of the leading European orchestras. It's like when I see some woman sitting there, I'm gonna have like five bottles of champagne. You know, <laughs> maybe I'll take a week off Facebook. You know, I've, for me that would be such a big thing. But of course, that's such a small thing, right? And that's just such a small part of of this um, rot in right. the system, right? right. That it's um, right. And we shouldn't silo our lives because that was I, that was the the point I was making. Having come from the south, I played lots of music by black composers my whole experience but because of the the environment I was in it was siloed and I think I think that's the exciting thing about diversity in general because when we bring in diverse voices we actually can start to shine a light and see that oh um oh we should be thinking of this and oh we should be th thinking of this and the, what's exciting about all of that is it makes what we do better Absolutely. We don't we don't suffer because of it. We actually makes things better. Uh, but it's so hard to get there, <laughs> Catherine. It's so hard to get to that place where where we can say if we do this, if we are more inclusive, if we get more diverse voices, then we will be better. If we look at music and don't think of it as this one thing like classical and this, but we look at the possibilities of like 
what is it if we're all together? How much better can it actually be? So, yeah. So much about this is about also process. Like we're talking about sort of goal and pro the end, but there's also process like, you know, the Sphinx NAS guideline, audition guidelines. Yes. And so there's sort of processes that institutions and industries are, or the same way the smallpox, like the COVID-19, there's like government agencies or systems thinking that can implement processes so that we can accelerate yes. the positive movement. That is correct. And this is kind yeah. of how I'm... I love those guidelines. I'm so glad you brought them up. I wish that uh, maybe you can link to them somehow. They're so good. And I don't know why we can't just everybody do them. Hi, this is Yumi, the National Alliance for Audition Support, or NAAS. The link is in the podcast description. Catherine, th there's so much about your life that, that um, uh, as a musician, as a performer, uh, um, that has also run up against life issues. The, the, um, uh, your experience in Baltimore. Um, my question is, how has that, if it at all, how has it affected you as a musician, as a performer? Yeah, particularly given your platform as <laughs> principal oboist uh, of Baltimore Symphony. Well, it's funny. It's funny because, you know, like, we don't talk about it at work. Nobody talks about mm. it. It's very quiet. And nobody, I think, I don't exactly know why. I mean, I would be willing to talk about it for sure with people, but it's... There's certain things that you don't talk about at work, mm. right? And <laughs> Here we are! Here That's we are! Right. And there's certain things that you're not supposed to talk about ever, right? right. And Here um, we are! You know, like filing an EEOC charge is one of those. You're not supposed to do that. You shouldn't talk about it. You know, and they were very clear to me that you shouldn't talk about being asked for sex, right? Like, that's just something you shouldn't talk about. That's unprofessional behavior, you know? Um, and so I don't talk about it that much. Uh, my life at work is actually relatively pleasant because I have to say I play in a woodwind section that I love. I love to play with them. Mm. Um, and I certainly, um, when we were locked out and I was doing all this solo stuff and then I was in my house for all that time in the pandemic, I really um, developed a new way of looking things uh, at things maybe. I really can derive all of my satisfaction in my living room. I mean, mm. my musical satisfaction is not related to external forces. Um, that said, I really do enjoy playing with the people. I sit mm -hmm. around a lot. I can really bounce off them and, and that's really pleasant, but I'm not having discussions about this stuff right. with them. Right. So that probably makes it more pleasant, right? Uh, because there's certain ways that you're supposed to behave at work. And, you know, I go to work and I play my part and, you know, we go over whatever needs to go over and we play a nice concert and go home. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you experience um, sort of social ramifications of your decision to go public with the EEOC? You know, I don't know if it was just that. And then, you know, I think certainly, I guess maybe it was only two years later um, and time sort of comes together. Um, I think that um, I certainly get called to do things less than I did before, but that could just be a function of my age or, you know, no one, no one is willing to admit when they play the, play the instrument less well. I don't think that I'm playing the instrument less well than I used to. I actually think I'm playing it better, but nobody is a good judge of that. Right. So take that for whatever it's worth. Um, but certainly in terms of being called to guest other places or, you know, play fancy chamber music things and that sort of thing, I definitely am asked 
do that less now than I was before. Um, and, you know, nobody wants a troublemaker, um, you know, and all the other things that I've been called and which are a fair bit worse. Um, and I know that when I say that, that's terrifying for people. It's sort of terrifying for the young people who write me and say, I want to talk about this, but I don't think I can because I'm mm. afraid of work. Um, but for me, you know, I'm thankfully in, in a real position of privilege, right? Like I have a tenured job. Um, I have health care. I have... Um, I have satisfaction, right? I have musical satisfaction that is sort of self-generated. So I, I'm in a place where I can do this and I almost feel that it's my responsibility at this point because, you know, what happens to me in my career is not so important. It's, it is what it is, it's fine. Um, and so I just hope that, I hope that the next generation has different opportunities. I mean, my daughters will not be musicians. That's not what they want to do. But I hope that somebody's daughters, you know, who yeah. want to be musicians will have a better, better chance um, in the future. Um, and I have so many, so many angry men writing me. Um, it's always men. Um, uh, <laughs> but um, they're always, they're like, well, things are so much better now than they were in the 1970s. Why can't you just be happy? And one of my colleagues wrote me this super angry thing. But he said, I saw two women in the bass section last week. <laughs> and it's like, well, two women one week in the bass section? Does that mean that everything is better? Right. Really? Right. Um, so, you know, that's kind of where I am. Yes, I think it's affected the way people look at me. They're not going to say it to my face in general. Uh, most of the comments that I get directed to me are anonymous. Um, you know, sometimes I'll get them from some guy with his name on Facebook, but um, you know, it is what it is. And for me, I have a bigger goal than yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not too worried about love. Yeah. This is a very, your kindred spirit. Cause I think this is a, a big reason why we're, we're wanting to make sure we have a, a voice We're we're coming from a place of privilege with, um, our sense of musical satisfaction, yeah. like you pointed out, our privilege of employment and benefits and it is our responsibility to pave the way so that the next generation has it has it better and so that not and so the little girls have a chance a fair yes. shot for the and also for the little boys out there will know how to treat the other their their colleagues or their female, or their CEOs properly respectfully yeah absolutely right just just even to think about it we were talking about science. Why am I blanking on the guy's name? The famous scientist, Francis something. What was his name? Oh, this is embarrassing. Um, but he was uh, some super big scientist. I don't know anything because I play the oboe. But he <laughs> said that he wouldn't participate in any um, conferences where there wasn't adequate representation yeah. of, uh, I think it was women, but maybe, maybe it was also racial um, representation too. And he just would ask in advance, Oh, you want me to come speak? Okay. Well, well tell me who, who else is speaking yeah. and he would decline to participate. Um, and I would love to see that happen. It's not so hard. And yeah. there's so many people who are operating at the top of the system that have so much leeway and they're worried about their career or something right now. It's like, if they said, no, uh, you know, I'm not going to be on this jury, not this time because uh, I see no women on this jury right. or, no, the jury is all white people, so I'm going to sit this one out, and, and you bring somebody else in. They would have no ramifications for that, yeah. or maybe yeah. even positive ramifications, right? Yeah. But we hardly see anyone doing that, and I would love to see some people doing that. It's so inspirational, Catherine. Um, uh, 
I feel like I have a pretty progressive mind, but I feel like just following you, I've learned even more. Um, it's made me think about how the role I can play. Um, I, I love the fact that you continually advocate. You, you mentioned before that oftentimes the folks who are the ones who are not represented are also quiet. Um, so I love the fact that you, you're making sure that <laughs> uh, 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 a voice is heard, but you're also encouraging those who are on, of the majority to also be an advocate, which is um, uh, just as, if not more important. I haven't been so successful there. Um, you know, I, I wish I were more successful. Catherine, you may not see it, but I think you are, you, at the very least, you are um, uh, uh, chipping away uh, and starting conversations where they, they need to be had. Um, I hope so. You know, if, if at least they consider it, that's probably better than, you know. Yeah. Actually, I well related to that, my question um, is actually, is there a community or an orchestra or some competition or some organization that's actually doing it right in some way, even if their numbers may not? But is there some some place that you're like, actually, this this place may have hope? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I hesitate to point any of them out because as soon as I point one of them out, then somebody writes me. <laughs> it's something horrible, right? Uh -huh. um, and, you know, we all have good and bad, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody has good and bad within them. Um, so I don't, I, don't, I don't exactly know, but um, Opera Philadelphia, I've been impressed mm -hmm. with, and I'm a complete outsider there. So I don't really know, but I know they um, – hire people from behind screens they hire them directly from behind screens yeah. which uh is do you say nas or nas guidelines what are, yeah you the nas yeah 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 which is what they say to do there and um they put out a program for next season which i think is really quite yeah. forward thinking yes um, and, you know, we have the big opera house to the north that's only put on 10 operas out of 30,000 in its, you know, 100 plus year history by women. And, you know, I think a good like 35 or 40 percent are by women and they have composers of color. And it's really quite diverse, especially relatively um, next season at Opera Philadelphia. And then I also saw somebody did um, a racial breakdown of the singers and it's quite good. They have like they had black people, they had Latinx people, they had um, indigenous people, they had Asian people, yeah. they had white people in less than 50%, you know? So I thought, well, that seems better than most places. You know, it seems like they're trying, yeah. right? Um, which I really appreciate. And I also posted recently something about a trumpet event at the University of Kentucky. And it looked great to me because in brass, we see like super, um, predominance of white men and it, this really was quite different and I posted it and someone wrote to me no this is no good because this guy who runs it was called out before for having all white dudes and I'm like well if that's how he started and this is his response that's actually good yeah. right yeah like he went from something which wasn't good and he got called out and he changed his tune so maybe that's actually really good um so that looked good for me. Um, another organization, which I've definitely had some trouble with, um, but I was involved on their DEI committee for a while, um, the International Double Read Society. Mm. Their oboe competition, um, now they have requirements. Um, I was involved in, in generating, with, generating these, but they have a requirement, a percentage of 
composers that are gender marginalized and a required component of composers that are racially marginalized. And so now everybody has to practice that stuff. And it's not has to, it's like, oh, yay, we get to practice something other than the Mozart concerto. Right. Yes. <laughs> and some, you know, French show pieces that everybody's been playing for the last 150 years. So, I mean, yeah, we can play those too, but it's now that they're required repertoire for these big competitions, that's a really good thing. So I have to um, give them credit there. And then on the other hand, you know, the chairs of their bassoon competition for the last 45 years have all been white dudes. So, you know, it's like, I can't give you a perfect answer, um, but, but those are some places that I think are doing some good things. It's, it's great to hear the, the stories of hope and of possible change. Um, like you mentioned, the gentleman who was called out and then actually changed um, changed the the representation. I mean, that's those are stories of progress, and I think it speaks to the hard hard work that you're doing, um, and that colleagues like you are doing. And um, but I love asking that question about the stories of hope, because that light at the end of the tunnel keeps us going, and I imagine that must help fuel your courage and to face the pushback or the social capital ramifications um, that are kind of creeping, that can creep in um, in the workplace. Um, I guess my personal last <laughs> question would be, um, given all of that and the challenges and the ups and downs, what's a musical, what's a joyful moment for you recently, musically? Like what was a, a high point for you? Well, I, you know, I am, a very introverted person. So um, I, I like to spend a lot of time by myself. Um, and my favorite musical, uh, I mean, I not my favorite things, but I always have a good time in my living room making music. Yeah. And, you know, I don't always have a good time making music outside of my living room. And it's taken me a long time to feel marginally comfortable on a stage. Mm -hmm. um, but I play the piano and I don't play it particularly well, but... I love playing the piano. And so I play the piano every day. And, um, you know, there, there's certain things I can do. I love to accompany people. Um, I, you know, there's a really technically limited repertoire that I <laughs> have access to because I'm not that good. I've heard you play, Catherine. You it's pretty amazing. good. <laughs> and you did your oboe du piano duets. <laughs> but, you know, so I really, I really find, I can always sort of reset myself there. Um, and especially when we have an instrument like the three of us have that there's so much baggage with, right? And we have to be perfect all the time. It's nice to have something that's like, not like that. Um, it's like, oh yeah, I can't play that. That's fine. <laughs> um, and then I, maybe in the last two years, or I don't know, two and a half years, something like that. Um, I've always been an improviser at the piano. Um, the oboe's not as fun uh, for that, but... Um, I've started writing music, so I've actually had a lot of satisfying moments there. I don't know if joyful is the right word, but very satisfying yeah. moments there, creating something a little bit more permanent or, or really focusing on what it is that I want to say, which sometimes we can get distracted from when we're playing our instrument and having to play it for, for other people and for a conductor or that sort of thing. So I've been uh, really, really enjoying that lately. That's great. That's great. Catherine, thank you so much. Thank, thank you for being you. Thank My you, pleasure. thank you for being um, uh, 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 a mouthpiece for so many, uh, for so many, some who have voices, but many of whom don't. 
uh, I think what you represent and bringing to light is something the industry needs more of, not less of. Uh, we're in a space to, as what you literally said, we're in a space where we're told kind of like, oh, we can't challenge the norm, but in a lot of ways, it's the best, absolute best medicine for it. Uh, oh, I have one other thing. I know. Oh, yeah, one yeah. thing I'm excited about. <laughs> there are, I mean, there are a couple women on the internet sort of like me. There's um, a conductor in um, Israel named yeah. Talia Ivan. I love what she has to say. But there's a there's a clarinet group now. There are three women of the clarinet that have started. Yeah. Uh, they're friends. And, you know, the clarinet, for whatever reason, I can't understand it. It's like one of the most backward instruments in terms of gender representation. But when I was a student, all the girls played clarinet. So I don't understand how so many students who are women play the clarinet and so few play clarinet in orchestras, but somehow they're just like two or three yeah. that play in the major American orchestras is very few. Um, but these women are just like really going together, you know, against the, um, the, the, online clarinet stuff and there's so many competitions with all male juries and it's just it's really backward and to see the three of them going at it together it really makes me happy so I have to say that <laughs> it really <laughs> it really helps to have a, a feel like you have a kindred spirit or a yes. teammate um like I have like I feel like I have in Joe with <laughs> with this um but know that you always have kindred spirits with us because yes. we deeply appreciate admire and applaud the work that you're doing. That was so great to catch up with Catherine and to hear her story, yeah. her openness and um, her mission. This is her purpose. This is what drives her, her work. And it's super inspirational. I, I think what I thought the most about, and I think what resonated the most with me is how she talked about the silence and how hard our industry takes in any kind of change, um, uh, what it's met with, the resistance. Uh, you see two women in, in the base section and things are, we, we've moved past and everything's wonderful. I can think about- There's a week too. Oh, one week, that's right. I can think about that with me and my appointment. Oh, Philly has a, a, a black principal instrumentalist in the orchestra. So we've, we've, we've made it. <laughs> like we, we've, we, we've, uh, success. Um, and it's, it's, it's not even the tip of the iceberg, except for to acknowledge that there has been a line of progress that took 123 years, 22 years. Um, uh, there has been a line of progress. And I mean, even I said I was uh, I got that award today. I, 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 yeah, I mentioned it's not, I'm not the first who was capable of being principal base of the, of, of the orchestra or being having a principal position. I'm the first that was given, that had the opportunity and can make make the way. In which case, I I don't take any, oh, how can I say, I don't take any like personal pride in like, this is something I did, because it's definitely something that we did. It was a community effort to get me where, where I am and why I'm so dedicated with my work with Project for 40 and providing opportunities for others. But like the work that Catherine is doing is just constantly shining a light on the things um, that that need shining, um, uh, and I, I I'm I'm so grateful. I mean, I'm thinking about what because I, I feel like every week I could put pictures of of orchestras 
and trying to highlight where are all the people of color? <laughs> yes. um, uh, and and um, but yeah, voices like hers will help with the change, and it's just yeah, I, I love to, I love to see it. It's it yeah, it's great to see her and the strength and the courage and yes. the fortitude it takes to push through because it the onus and the responsibility of change is often on the lone minority because they're the ones who have a voice of experience and to pave the way for the next generation they are speaking from their experience or they're showing from their or they're advocating based on their experience and it 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 kind of reminds me of unfortunately like when they're assault cases the the vict the onus is on the victim Mm. to be willing to share their story and then if enough victims share their story then the perpetrator is taken away. Right. But it's only when... And the weight and the reliving those things is an incredible emotional weight. Right. Um, and challenge. And we see this in the workplace um, in racial and gender examples and that sort of lone responsibility and that heavy weight that it can it can take a toll. So, hence, this draws me... To, this This brings me back to why... We are tacit no more because I, it really fuels why I feel like it's it's a really important thing to be able to highlight and support and let the Catherines out there yes. know that they're they're being heard and appreciated and they're not alone. Right. And I think that's some of the most valuable purpose fire for me in in having these conversations. And that was I think if there's any anything sad, it was the fact that she still says she feels alone. Um, in, in, in her efforts. Uh, but I, I, I hope through this platform, and I know with us, she's, she's got some folks who are definitely rooting, rooting um, for along the way. Um, because it's simple stuff. I mean, it's not, it's not even, it's not offensive. And that's what's, and that's like, I'm sitting here honestly a little bit feeling, uh, not torn, but conflicted. Mm-hmm. Because it's not controversial. But our industry makes it controversial to show a, a, a picture of all the, the judges of a competition and that the, the fact that they're um, uh, all white men, it should not feel strange to bring up these points that are obvious. And they, they are obvious. But because of our environment, we are felt that we cannot talk about these things. We are not allowed to. We don't, and worse, if you do, you get a finger point at you and saying, like, shh, be quiet. There's social capital ramifications Correct. for Correct. that. Absolutely. Correct. Um, and so to me, that makes me sad because I feel it. In this conversation, I feel it. Yeah. Being on the mics with you right now, having this conversation in our space, I feel it. And we shouldn't. Um, and, and I think maybe, I mean, maybe that's just, just me being a minority in the space and always being told kind of like, be in your place, uh, um, literally be seen and not heard, just do your thing. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, but um, I, I really, and yeah, I mean, to bring it back to this podcast, it, 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 if there's something scary about this, is the fact that we aren't tacit any longer. Yeah. That's scary. Um, 
And I, I love how we have an optimistic view because unless we have these conversations, we can't actually have a mirror at ourselves to see what needs changing. And I'm just hoping that this platform can be used as something that can be an agent of change in an industry and in a world that needs this kind of, um, this kind of change uh, and acknowledgement, the fact that we need change. Uh, so it's, it's terrifying, yes, but it's also really exciting. Yes. Yeah. What, is the, what is that proverb? If you want to go fast, go alone. Right. If you want to go far, go together. Yeah. Let's go together. That's right. <laughs> want to join us, everyone? Let's do this. <laughs> All right, everyone, we've reached that point in our show. It is time for Name That Tune. As a reminder, we will be playing a quick segment of a piece of music from the repertoire. And if you think you know it, we ask that you go and submit your answers via the question box on our Instagram stories or send us an email at info at Can you all name this tune? Were you able to name that tune? Well, if so, be sure to put your answer in the question box on our Instagram stories or again, send us an email at info at tacitnomore.com. And as a reminder, we'll choose one winner to receive a jar of the coveted Joe's Jam, which supports my nonprofit organization, Project 440. That sounds delicious. Thanks for listening, everybody. Find us on Instagram at tacitnomore and email us at info at tacitnomore.com. Please share the show on social media and leave a rating and a review. Tacit No More is produced by Joseph Conyers, me, Yumi Kendall, Andrew Meller, and Lindsay Sheridan. Any views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not reflect any entities with which they are associated. <laughs>